1: take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Uh, Our phone screener is a little late to the party, so I'm just going to start taking calls unscreened. Uh, Hey, thanks so much for hanging on hold so long. I know you've been on hold for a while. I want to let you know you did win a free Free T-shirt, so it's not in vain. But welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hi, Noah. Hey, man. How's it going?
2: Good, good. My name is Logan. I'm a first-time caller, a long-time listener.
3: Outstanding. I How
2: actually, we... didn't realize that. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, I, that this amount of time that I've been on hold is considered to be a long time. I thought I was being proactive and calling in advance.
1: You were doing all of those things, right. and it did earn you a free T-shirt. But uh, but like, yeah, I'm looking at my call timer. It says you've been. It says you've been on the phone for 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, wow, oh that, yeah. I'm like, that's oh, some gosh, dedication. Having
2: fun listening to some of the uh, streaming stuff that's happening in the background. No, it's it's been fun. Uh, anyway, I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and uh, I've uh, been running Linux for 15 years, but. I took a bit of a break there for a couple of years. And uh, I, I started a law office about five years ago. And uh, I, I'm running a small business as a sole practitioner lawyer. And uh, running Linux, one difficulty that I've been having is finding PDF manipulation software. That kind of does it all. So Adobe Acrobat um, for, for Windows kind of, Let's me view PDFs, uh, edit PDFs, scan PDFs, and do it all, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find something equivalent for Linux that will let me uh, scan things to PDF, but also uh, manipulate them, straighten them out when I scan them in, and uh, add uh, OCR recognition to them. Because I found that there's been... Um, programs like ocular and uh that's for kde and uh i believe evans was the old gnome program i don't remember what it is now but there were programs that would do individual things but i'm trying to see if there's something that will kind of do everything for me uh all in one but i can't find anything i'm wondering if you could help me out with that
1: yeah actually i can uh i'm furiously uh I'm, I'm curiously typing here to, to get a hold of uh, my contact at a law office. I, I'll give you a um, little backstory. We actually, we, uh, we're we a managed service provider for another law office. And so I have had a first class seat into your uh, into your business, and, and and it's interesting because you guys have so many interest. You guys are are married to some technology so deeply, like fax, for example. Medical offices and law offices are like glued to fax. If I took your fax, if I told you I was going to take your fax machine, what's your first reaction?
2: Well, it's actually fine because I've been um, using eFax for a while. That sort of lets me email PDFs to. Uh, to a fax number at uh, an email address, and it will convert and do everything for me, and it's just wonderful. So, um, from that uh, aspect, I'm covered. But it's just the problem is coming up with a small, lean PDF that uh, uh, that is searchable uh, to begin with um, is the difficulty. Because once I have that, I can I can send it via fax uh, using the eFax, and everything is all good. You are um, ahead.
1: You are and, ahead, uh, you are ahead of your time. In. I'll just, you, ahead, yeah, I'll just tell you, you're ahead. Yeah, I'll just tell you, are ahead of your time. Uh, we have. I, I work with a number of law offices and medical facilities, and they're all like glued to fax machine. It drives me nuts. Um, but anyway, the name of the sorry. To get back to, get back to your question, I, I, I understand that. So PDF manipulation is is huge in your industry, and I understand the con. You know, you have to be able to sign these PDFs. You need to be able to extract images, as you said. You need to be able to extract text. You need to be able to recompile multiple documents into one. You need to be able to encrypt those PDFs. And there is a software that does all of that. It works natively on Mac, Windows, and Linux. And it is called Master PDF. And um, we had a client, Loffice, and they had a, uh, a, a an alternative software that they were using. And, uh, and it was doing all of these things. And, and I sat down with them for consultation. And, and we kind of went through and said, okay, what all are you doing with this stuff? And they went and showed us all the things that they need to do to make their business work. And uh, it was just by happenstance, I kind of stumbled into it. I just Googled that particular piece of software they were using and said alternative to see what else was out there. And this master PDF program came up and uh, I actually liked it so much after watching them use it that I actually bought a license for myself. And uh, shortly thereafter, I don't know if you follow much of the other JB shows, but there Chris is really into RVing and there's a guy that him and I both watch that does RV stuff um, that he goes by the name, Mr. Travels. Uh, And, um, or Chris Travels, I think is 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 what he goes by, and uh, and and he had a, he posted on Facebook he needed some help doing some crazy things with the PDF, and I thought I wonder if Master PDF can do that. Bring the document in, open it in Master PDF. Absolutely no problem. You can ar- rearrange images, you can rearrange text, you can pull stuff out, you can combine stuff, you can encrypt the PDF, all of that, and it's not terribly expensive. The only knock I have on it is it is activation software, so you you can try it for like however long, and then it puts a little watermark on it until you pay for it. And then after you pay for it, you have to use this uh, activation key and activate the software. And the reason I say that's a knock against the software is, let's say you go and buy you know, 50 copies of this thing. If that company ever goes out of business, your 50 copies, you, you now have, uh, you know, uh, it's not even good as a paperweight because they don't actually send you a disk, it's just a download.
2: Right, right. Well, I, I certainly don't mind paying something for it as long as it's, good, it's a good value. I mean, Acrobat is a very expensive piece of software, so I certainly don't mind paying. So I'll certainly check out Master PDF. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, and and just so you know, it's nowhere near the cost of Acrobat. It's uh, it looks like it's sixty nine dollars and ninety five cents. By the way, Courtney from uh, the law office that we work for, uh, I I had messaged her and I said, "What's the name of that software? I need I need it really fast. I'm on the air." And she she told me, "So Master PDF." Uh, she says she wants credit, so credit goes to Courtney. At uh, Gregory, the law offices of Gregory Wright. Uh, we appreciate you retaining Alt-Speed Technologies as your IT service provider, and for giving me answers at, at six oh seven about uh, what software our callers want. Uh, thanks for the call. I appreciate it, man. And uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. Um, but uh, I I wrote down your uh, phone number here, and I will give you a call, or I'll have a call screen, or give you a call after the show and get your particulars uh, for your T-shirt. So thanks for calling in. Uh, good afternoon. You're on the Ask Noah show. What's on your mind?
4: Hello, this is Trey Howard. Hey man. Um, I'm a uh, long time listener. I'm a big fan of what you do. Broadcasting it. Um, and I'm looking for some help to, uh, find a product that I think must exist. Um, to be able to take a cellular signal and then send that out. um, over like a, a, a lamp so hmm. somehow plug a SIM card into a Wi-Fi router and then be able to plug in you know standard LAN cable and and serve it up over a wireless does such things exist
1: yeah I'm okay so let's uh, let's when you say cell signal do you actually mean like cell phone cell phone signal or do you mean like LTE like mobile yeah, data
4: like buy SIM cards from from Ting um thing would be ideal because i don't even know if i'm going to be able to use gsm or cdma okay um and and then somehow get that to um serve up internet um over a you know basic wireless I- i'll go in to explain the situation please yeah um um so Later next month, uh, we're going on a family trip, but yet my wife needs to be able to do her day job. And um, she normally works from home, and uh, part of their VoIP system is uses a, you know, a basic, your standard uh, telephone, and it um, only works if you plug in a LAN cable. There's, there's no wireless on
1: Gotcha. Okay, I'm following you. I have the solution for you. Um, So, yeah, so what you're looking for is you're looking for a device that will take an LTE signal. You want to get on the data network. You don't necessarily need the cell phone signal to to send voice calls. You just need the LTE data part, Uh, and and such a device does exist. Um, It is made by Netgear. It is called the Netgear Nighthawk LTE uh, router, and I have one. I use it actually every time I do a show because uh, the thing is, I have my I have a little machine that I bring with me when I do shows from the road. And that machine also, I mean, has Wi-Fi in it, but I don't like using Wi-Fi, especially if I'm in a conference. I want something that's plugged in and um, I, I have the exact same need. I need to be on a mobile LTE network. I need to be able to just put a SIM card in there, but I need the other end of that to spit out as a wired connection because that's what my little box uses. Uh, and this device does all of that. In fact, it can, it can even d- go one step further and you can put it into what's called a bridge mode and it will turn off all of the routing and firewall capabilities of this device. And then you could, so for example, where you might want to use that is maybe you want to buy yourself a Microtech uh, RB750 and you want to put it into some sort of little Pelican case and you want your wife or your family to have a little mobile network that you take with us. The Netgear Nighthawk LTE Mobile Hotspot Router will connect the LTE connect to the LTE network. It will give you a public IP live on the internet, and pass that directly through to your router. So you maybe for and so in your wife's example, you if you're using a a VoIP phone, you might need to forward port fifty sixty to get traffic to work. That may be difficult and or impossible depending on what service provider you using, all of those kinds of things. Or, for example, maybe you need to open some ports up to get a VPN to work. Uh, You'd be able to do all of that uh, with a a third-party router. One of the other things that I've done numerous times with this device and why I just love it, I've had the Internet go out at my house. My cable provider goes out. I put the thing into bridge mode. I go downstairs. I unplug the... um, cable modem and i just plug this uh little mobile lte hotspot in and into my home router and all of the devices in my house which are connected to my wi-fi network in my house and and wired into my house including my my fiber connection to my workstation all of those things come online instantaneously but instead of going out to the internet over my cable modem they're going out over this little tiny lte uh uh, uh, router essentially lte modem so it works very well that way does that sound like quite what you're looking for
4: uh, exactly.
1: Yeah, Nighthawk LTE mobile hotspot. I have, uh, I have not, I have not actually tried this with Ting because uh, in order to buy the device, I the only place I could, I needed it in a hurry because I was leaving out of town for a conference. So I went to one of the big box retailers and bought it. But I was just looking through the specification sheet, and the bands, the LTE bands that it supports, um, will do look like they will work with Ting so it uh, it supports uh, lte and 4g bands one two three five one two three four five seven nineteen twelve twenty nine thirty and sixty six uh and it supports 3g 2 4 and 5 so i i am fairly certain that this device will work with a ting sim card if you buy it unlocked uh a little hot tip for those of you that are looking for unlocked devices if you need a store that you can buy them in best buy sells uh, unlocked devices. The other thing you can do is you can go into an AT&T store. They sell the uh, Netgear Nighthawk LTE router. You can tell them you just want to buy the router. You don't want to buy service. You can purchase the router without service, and uh, and then you, you go onto to one of AT&T's sites, and you can actually activate the device. You can buy an unlocked... Uh, you, you can't buy an unlocked device from at&t per se but you can buy a device and then immediately unlock it they will let you do that Uh, and i've done that before i did that for my wife uh bought it it bought an at&t device galaxy s8 unlocked it took it home went to their little at&t website unlocked it and put it on ting and it works just fine Uh, so that's something you can do but the device you're looking for is called the netgear nighthawk mobile router and i will have a link for you in the show notes
4: Oh, okay, cool! Super. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks for the call. Again, open phones this hour one eight fifty five Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. I want to uh, say hello to our uh, mumble room. I didn't have you guys. Uh, I didn't have you guys turned on last week because I was. I wasn't in the studio. So I just want to say hello and and welcome uh, all all the people that are in the mumble room. So hi guys. Uh, if you guys want to speak up, you're in there. Just ping me in the chat room. Oh. I'll put you on. Uh, We'll go back to the phones. James is calling from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Noah Show. We're on a delay. Hello. Hey, how's it going, man? Hey, hey, you haven't gotten back to
0: me. Hey.
1: Hey, how's it going, man? James, can you uh, can I have you shut the uh, can I sh- you have you shut the streaming off and, and talk to me over the phone? It's the the delay makes the conversation a little more yeah. difficult.
0: Yeah, so I was trying to kill. Hey, yeah. uh, I <laughs> got him for a while and then the things you were trying to order coming and um, uh, I need some help. When your team didn't want to, uh, talk about LVM, uh, can I schedule something with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, t- I tell you what, James, I'm not in front of my scheduling system uh, right now. So but I will uh, I tell you what, I'll make a note for myself. And I'll give you a call back right after the show. And, and we can have somebody get in contact with you. Officially, we all speak, closes the doors at 6pm. At so there's nobody here. Otherwise, I would I'd have them somebody jump on with you right now. Uh, there's nobody I can hand you over to right this minute. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I will. Uh, we'll get somebody on that and, and take a look at your LVM issues. <clears throat> Again, open phones this hour, 1855 noah That's 855 450 6624 The email live at AskNOAShow.com. OMG Ubuntu Headline: Meet the Astronaut AI that runs on wind. No, I'm just kidding. Ubuntu. Hey Siri, send apologies to Alexa and commiserations to Cortana because a brand new AI assistant is on the scene, and he's quite literally out of this world. Simon. Has said to go boldly where no AI assistant has gone before, and that is space. Meet Simon, the Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. This free floating Ubuntu based cyber colleague has been designed to mitigate the stresses of and share the work during long term spaceflight. And to do that, he's blindly, he's boldly gone where no AI assistant has gone before space. Simon is an autonomous AI powered assistant that can see, hear, understand and speak with astronauts thanks to a slate of onboard cameras, microphones, sensors, and processors. Twelve internal fans give him full directional mobility, including the ability to nod or shake his head. His voice he's voice control, too, meaning that astronauts are free to perform tasks and conduct experiments with both hands while remaining uh, while remaining to be able to fully access and interface command with their cyber colleague as they need to. Simon can present and explain a detailed range of information, including steps required in an experiment in experiment steps, repair instructions and, and to answer questions. He can also perform routine tasks like searching for objects or documents. The result of experiments, which take place on board the station. What's particularly unique about Simon is that he is, is that he is, uh, ah, this is what happens when I load websites. What's particularly unique is Simon is, is that he is also able to designed to fulfill more of a social role, hence the animated human face across an eight inch display. And I just have to tell you, we'll have this article linked in the show notes. You should actually check out his animated face because I find it to be wholly creepy. The AI powered smart assistant developed by Airbus in cooperation with IBM is currently being tested by the German Space Administration, or DLR, and the European Space Agency, ESA, aboard the International Space Station under the stewardship of German astronaut Dr. Alexander Gerst. Simon runs on, you guessed it, Ubuntu. Ubuntu is no stranger to life aboard the International Space Station. The distro is used in a variety of spacefaring tasks, from powering laptops to the, uh, to the ISS, to controlling high-tech rovers back down on Earth. Now, there was a couple of things that stuck, uh, stuck out to me. First of all, I think it's really cool that we have one more device that is running Linux in space. I think it's one more testament to the stability and reliability of Linux that when they absolutely have to have something to work, that when they absolutely have to have an operating system that's going to work, when they absolutely have to have a software stack that's going to work 100% of the time, they choose Linux every single time. I don't think that's an accident, and I'm happy to see that that continues to be a trend that we see. Watson was, if you haven't seen the original Watson videos, you should go check it out. And Watson is a AI system, so to speak, created by IBM. And it originally gained a lot of popularity and a lot of fame back in the days of, I think it was Jeopardy, and they would have the this Watson computer playing against some of the world's best Jeopardy contestants. And um, the thing that made Watson unique originally was that it. Wasn't actually connected to the cloud or the internet at all Watson could process and answer these questions based on its collective knowledge of something or some things or the world and uh, you can understand the 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 the, uh, the the wide range of questions you would get on a game like Jeopardy and Watson was designed to answer those questions better than the people that had done it time and time again. So. Uh, that, that was the first thing that stuck out to me was in this article It actually talks about how Watson is the, the cloud processing for Watson is actually being done back on Earth. And they did that for reasons of upgrades and, and all of that. But it seems to me if I was launching a device into space where, uh, you know, sending a message, sometimes getting cell reception halfway across my um halfway across my city can be problematic. I can't imagine even if I am on a, you know, multi thousand mile tower i wouldn't want to have to deal with reception issues right you now cloud Watson, you know simon can't currently access the cloud right now please try again i mean that would be frustrating i would think especially if you're in space but i have to fix my spaceship you know you're gonna have to wait the uh the clouds down we, we lost connection to the cloud it's uh, they're working on it service technicians the service ticket has been created you know just, uh, that kind of thing just rubs me the wrong way why would you, you have all this power of watson why not send it up there maybe can't we like uh you know scp updates up to the thing or something maybe it can like I don't know. It just, just seems like if you're going to run it on Watson, Watson was originally designed to run offline. Why would you not, why would you, why would you not keep that up? Um, but the other thing that stood out to me was that they, they designed this in collaboration with Airbus. Now, if you're not familiar with Airbus, I have a good friend of mine that's an Airbus pilot. And looking into the internal design architecture, inter, internal design structure of Airbus and their design philosophy is very interesting. Airplanes for a long, long time were just flown by hand. And what Airbus did was they were one of the first companies, French company, one of the first companies to look up and say, we think that a computer can fly a plane safer than a human can. So we're going to let the human fly the plane, but we're going to put into place safety measures so the human can't crash the plane. And in a couple of instances, those safety measures that they have put into place have caused the plane to crash. Not directly, but them, the the safety measures in collaboration with how a, a human responded caused the plane to crash. And so you actually had a a pilot that stalled a a plane from like 35,000 feet right into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean because he didn't understand how this particular safety mechanism was being put into place. And so pilots tend to tend to really polarize on the issue of Airbus automation. And so to have that company come in and design an AI assistant specifically to be used in space, I thought was a was a really interesting choice. If anybody would know about automation on aircrafts, it certainly would be Airbus. They picked the right person for the job. If there was ever if there was ever a decision to be made about how we shouldn't do something on automation on aircrafts of any kind it would there there's a handful of pilots or a a, a division of pilots that would definitely say airbus is the the same way so i i thought that was an interesting decision but yeah check this thing out simon running on ubuntu designed in collaboration with airbus and ibm utilizing the uh, watson speech engine i want to go back to the mumble room jj is with us and has a question hey jj welcome to the ask noah show
5: How's it going, Noah? How's your prime day been
1: so far? Terrible. I, I don't know about you, but uh, the last two days, like, I didn't know it was prime day. And um, I tried to order something on Amazon, and I'm looking at a picture of a puppy. I'm like, why is this dog here? I want to order something. And I try something uh-huh. else. I'm like, why is this dog here? I want to order something. And I, I'd refresh. I go to a different computer. Why is this? I start to think, maybe there's something wrong with my internet. Like, you know, is my internet. Going nuts. I go over to my office. I can't. All I get is these dogs. I remote into a computer in Vancouver, British Columbia, the client that we manage remote into one of their machines and try to order it on one of their machines, which is funny because there's another whole story about being redirected to the Canadian version. But uh, same thing. I keep looking at dogs and then I do some research and find out this prime day. Amazon has failed to anticipate the load that they would get. And so it's just their systems are coming down right and left. But there, I uh, don't know, I don't know if, I don't know if you, how, like what your favorite deals are, or specifically what you wanted to talk about. But I have to tell you, they have a, uh, a Samsung 960 M. drive or uh, uh, 960 Pro M.2 dot uh, you know, um, MV&E drive, and uh, the one terabyte version is three hundred bucks right now on sale for the Amazon Prime Day. So I was trying to nap that up because that's a great deal.
5: Oh wow! Speaking of storage, I actually got a 64 gigabyte flash drive from Sandisk for 14 bucks, roughly. So that was a, that was pretty good. Those are great flash um, drives. Uh, it wasn't a flash drive. It was a micro SD card.
1: Oh okay. Oh yeah. wow! Wow, that's a great deal. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I'll probably post it in the chat room later, and also in the Telegram, possibly. Uh, my question is with regards to routers, like searching for routers. If I, I know that you have a specific router that you recommend for home networks, but if someone was to shop around for a router what should they look for specifically in terms of their um specs i'm not looking for a am um, not looking for a mesh router yet at this moment just an upgrade from N to ac and uh something decent uh for the for the money
1: sure uh so a couple of things that you look for in a router the first thing i look for in a router is its ability for net traversal so what does the net interface look like a lot of routers simplify nat into just port forwarding, so traffic comes in on port 22 and uh, then we forward that port that traffic onto a specific ip address one of the things i always look for anytime i'm shopping for a router is the ability to do nat traversal with a little bit more advanced functionality so for example windows um rdp port on windows is 3389 so if you want to use uh, terminal services on windows you have to forward port 3389 now without digging into the registry because there is a way to do it it's a little bit of a hacky method but it is technically possible without digging into the registry the easiest way to forward multiple ports on Windows RDP sessions is to forward port let's say uh six thousand one to three three eight nine at this particular IP address six thousand two at three three eight nine to this particular IP address and so on and so forth and so I can forward uh you know seventy some uh I can, forward set, I can make 70-some port forwards or NAT traversals all with individual ports, but they all connect back to 3389. So I've never touched the actual client configuration, which, by the way, if you do that, then it breaks the ability to natively RDP into those sessions. If you just type in the host name, then you got to append whatever weird port you put on there because you've modified it. It's no longer listening on 3389. Uh, so, so that's one thing I look for is the ability for more advanced NAT traversals. The second thing I look for is built-in DNS capability. Now we all know how we can set up our own DNS server if we really had to. You can install Name D and, and make all the configuration changes. But especially for simpler, smaller networks, it's really, really beneficial to have just a, uh, a, a to to be able to 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 create a host name and have it forward to an IP address. And you can use that everything for simple things like the my Volumeo box in my house. I don't want to have to remember the IP address. I just want to go to Volumeo.com and have it forward to my Volumia box. Not the Volumeio website so i've mapped a dns address in my house um if you install the unify systems one of the ways that you can adopt unify access points across the internet uh through layer three is by specifying a dns name cheaper less expensive home consumer grade routers typically won't have that kind of dns functionality um a remote management capability proper remote management capability in other words I don't just want an unsecured HTTP session I want the ability to SSH into the router or at the very minimum use HTTPS or something like that Preferably I would like to shut the web config off completely and just use SSH or something like that Built-in VPN functionality not necessarily a must on every router I ever put in But ideally I would like to be able to VPN into the router So if I ever have to make changes from remote I can do that and all of these things so far uh, I would say, are applicable regardless of if you're shopping for a home router or if you're shopping for a business router. I, I kind of want all my routers to support advanced NAT traversal and at least some form of DNS. When you start getting into the business side or small business side, then there's a couple other things you start looking for. You want multiple users and, you, and there's all sorts of different things that you want to be able you know, uh, uh, advanced DHCP handling. You want to be able to hand out, um, to point machines to, um you know, like, uh, pixie booting and, uh, TFTP servers and stuff like that. But you don't really, you're not going to worry about that so much if you're in the home environment, but those are some of the things I would look for. Does that kind of answer your question?
5: Yes. And, uh, also what about VLANs and stuff? Because I'm, I'm trying to also learn, I'm also maybe considering a router that supports VLANs as well, because, uh, I've heard it sort of mitigates, uh, bandwidth trouble as well as uh, mitigates, uh. You can mitigate your network into different zones. I'm still trying to look for a decent tutorial on how to do it. Uh, any of your recommendations?
1: Yeah. So VLANing alone won't mitigate really anything. However, VLANing in combination with things like quality of service and stuff like that. So you can so you can say so. For example, we put all of our 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 traffic, our data traffic, maybe we we'll put it on VLAN 100. And all of the voice traffic goes on 200, and then we specify in the router that all of the uh, all of the traffic on 200 um, has priority to exit the to to has priority uh, traffic as as it relates to that outbound uh, trunk, um, internet trunk, whatever it is. And so you can uh, so for those kinds of things, you can use VLANs. To be fair, if you find a if you find a router that supports advanced DNX functionality and supports uh, advanced um, uh, NAT traversal and stuff like that, and for some reason it doesn't support VLANing. Let me know because I'm not sure such a router exists. You, I've seen VLAN supported even in some of the home like TP-Link stuff. uh Has even the the the, the cheapest twenty nine dollar uh, TP-Link stuff supports VLANing. There's some switches that I've used in in a pinch. I don't. I wouldn't give out the model number. I don't like them that much, but they're they're enough they're like twenty nine dollars and and they're just switches and so if you just need to get if you have one run of ethernet from one place to the other and you just need to pass a couple vlans through take some traffic and pull it out at the other end i've used some of those thirty dollar switches before they work in a pinch uh so i mean yeah that that's that's kind of like bare level stuff but i would absolutely insist on that's that would go under the requirements of i wouldn't buy a router that didn't support vlans
5: Okay, I really do appreciate your uh, help, Noah. And I hope everybody else has a great few last hours of Prime Day, I guess.
1: Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate the call. And yeah, the like I said, I have a I have a love hate relationship with the uh, with the Prime Day thing. It's it's gone both ways. Um. Yeah. Again, phone lines are open. One eight fifty five Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. I want to take a couple moments uh, earlier on the show. I just want to address something real quick. Um, we are holding a contest. 2019 is going to mark the 10-year anniversary of the Asuna, or sorry, <laughs> of the uh, of Ultra Speed Technologies, and uh, we've been serving people for 10 years. And at, at the 10-year mark, we've decided that we are going to make a, a little bit of a refresh, and so we are holding a contest to redo our logo and uh and we've gotten some really fantastic submissions and i want to thank everybody that's participated thus far now the contest is going to run until november we're going to give away a three hundred dollar cash prize and by cash i mean we're going to paypal your money or cash app your money um so you can participate from anywhere in the world and uh what we'd like to do is we'd like to see some sort of resemblance to our old logo at least enough that people understand that we're the same company uh we've also spent considerable time effort and money on our color scheme, and so the color scheme that exists inside of Altaspeed Technologies on our shirts, on our vehicles, on the website, all of that matches. It's kind of that black on orange. In fact, one of the things when we were designing graphic arts for the Asnoa show, I said, I really want to try to match that same color scheme because it'll make it a lot easier if I ever wanted to do, if I ever put a banner up and I need the Altaspeed logo and the Asnoa show side by side. It'd be nice if it all kind of blended together. And so we even worked to try to incorporate the ask Noah show to have some of the same design elements as all speed technology. So they all match together. Now it doesn't mean you're married to that. If you have a really good reason why not to do that, then by all means uh, feel free to express some creative freedom. Um, but just understand that primarily that's what we're looking for. And uh, I've mentioned it at the end of the show a couple of times, but uh, but yeah, I, I just wanted to take a moment kind of earlier in the show to m- mention it. I know a lot of people kind of tune out towards the end. And uh, so, if there's anybody out there, we would love to take those submissions. You can email your submission logo at altaspeed.com. L O G O at altaspeed.com, and uh, we would be happy to review them. We got a couple people that have done that already, and they look absolutely fantastic. Uh, after November, I think uh, it's funny. I, I not after November, we're gonna we're gonna pick a winner, and then we're gonna move pretty quick on it um, because we want to get all of our new merchandise, our shirts, backpacks, all of that stuff. Um, we want all that ready to go right away in January, and it's it's funny. I, I all my clothes, everything I wear, I I, I wear the same pants and I wear the same UltraSpeed polo t-shirt pretty much everywhere I go, and uh, I don't want to order new clothes until we have the new logo squared away. So quite literally, you participating in this contest is clothing me um, because I can't order the clothes until until uh, you guys get the uh, until we get the, the the logo squared away. So more information about that in the show notes. Again, the show notes. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. And by the way, I'll take this moment to just remind everybody about the show notes. Uh, We put a lot of cool things in there that we don't put on, that I don't talk about in the show. So if you ever want something really cool, check out the Ask Noah show show notes. uh, You'll find some stuff in there we don't even get a chance to talk to on the show. Annie is calling. Hey, Annie, welcome to the Ask Noah show.
0: I got a question about the key pass, multi-pass type password managers you've talked about in the past. Sure um He talks about keypass as a good plugin replacement for um, lastPass and that's what I'm currently using because I've tried to find the key pass and get it working just like I would with lastPass where I go onto the page and auto logs me in or has a drop down to pick which which cri- criteria to enter um, and and there's I understand you have to put in the base unit and then you can put a plug into firefox but then there's like Correct. key pass x or key pass xe there's key packs uh RPC, mm-hmm. key pass, password sure. two <laughs> yeah i got you and on and on it's like what? what what's going on i hear you i just want something that works yep you know i i and hear also you the other thing if i use multi-pass that you talked about in the past. Do I even need this? If I just want to do the multi multi pass or
1: however yep. you can say it. Yep. Um you don't need even do I No you don't no yeah no no you don't need it. That's the answer to your question. You don't the, the multi pass is by far the better solution. It's the simpler solution and it's the one that's going to work for you uh, without having to in, you don't really have to install anything. It can emulate a keyboard. Now they have extensions that you can install. And if you install those extensions you'll be able to you'll be able to do a little bit more with it. But yeah, multipass is definitely the way to go in your particular situation. We have a guest standing by. We're going to bring him in. I, these are two guys from IX systems. Both of them are good friends of mine. And uh, we were discussing uh, a a while back about uh, at Southeast Linux fest about how, uh, the free BSD people have kind of reinvented their desktops, and uh, and are doing some really cool things. And I, as we got into the conversation, I said, "Well, you guys just need to come on the Ask Noah show and talk about this because I think that there are enough BSD people that they would really get some benefit out of this." So, joining us on the program is uh, Ken Moore and JT Pennington from IX Systems. Hey, guys, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, man, how you doing? Hey. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have both of you there. So I have it right. You guys both work for IX Systems, but you guys are heavily involved in uh, TrueOS and Lumina Desktop and stuff like that. Correct, yes. So uh, an article came out here in um, uh, It's FOSS, and uh, the headline was TrueOS doesn't want to be BSD for desktop anymore. And uh, I know, JT, you and I have talked uh, at length off the air about Repositioning the Lumina Desktop and some of the things you're doing, and I just wanted to go get it from the horse's mouth, as it were, uh, from you guys. Tell me what the direction of TrueOS is. Tell me what the direction of Lumina Desktop is. You know where it's been and where we're going.
3: Okay. Uh, well, I think the best thing would be actually to step back in time uh, to kind of give a groundwork of where TrueOS came from, um, because a lot of people knew the project originally as PCBSD. Um, but TrueOS has actually been a name that has been used with the project for a while. Um, so since Ken has been with the project for the longest period of time, I'm going to have him kind of step back and kind of go over a brief overview of the history of the TrueOS project and how it evolved to where it is today. Um, and then he can pass the torch back to me, and I'll take it from there.
1: Sounds good. Let's do that. So, Ken, uh, give us the history of the uh, of the BSD desktop.
3: Okay. So, way back in the day, PCBSD.
6: Um, Chris started that as just a desktop distro of FreeBSD and that was the whole point. I think he was using KDE3 at the time, moved to KDE4. But uh, I came on board with him a year or two after he started the project, something like that, and we'd been doing that for a while. Well, we also had a server option available for PCBSD. And so back then it's like, you know what? It's it's you know, it's not very useful to just call it the PCBSD server because PCBSD is thought of as a desktop. So we came up with the name TrueOS, and we actually used the name TrueOS as the server version of PCBSD, and we had that name in our installer and all over the place and trademarked and everything for a long, long time. Um, When we went through the whole transition period from PCBSD, it's like, you know what? Why do we have two different names? PCBSD is difficult. Let's just call the entire thing TrueOS because, well, we already have the name. We already use it for the server side. Right. And so we migrated to making just everything called TrueOS. But we've kind of had this long roadmap for quite a while that... especially during that migration from PCBSD to TrueOS, we were no longer just a distribution of FreeBSD. We were making some pretty significant changes to FreeBSD itself, bringing in LibreSSL SSL into base, um, making a whole ton of other uh, configuration changes. OpenRC was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, and we had to say, okay, no, no, this is very, very different from FreeBSD in many ways. It's no longer just a distribution of FreeBSD.
1: So it kind so it, so it kind of took off one it kind of took one one off one. on its own then and kind of it cut, you, you inadvertently born a distro so to speak then.
6: Yeah, kind of. So it's like we we did that and we called it TrueOS. And use the name. And in, we had to kind of keep explaining that to people over and over again that TrueOS is different from FreeBSD because people still thought of it as just a dis- desktop distribution of FreeBSD, which sure. it really wasn't because that was a lot of the people who were familiar with the PCBSD name and thought, oh, we just changed the name and nothing else changed without realizing all the other changes that had gone on underneath the hood. So what we're doing here is continuing on in that same vein of fixing a lot of things in FreeBSD that we thought weren't working properly or bringing in stuff ahead of time or you know making the changes to FreeBSD itself. We're discovering okay we really need to help formalize the distinction between TrueOS as in the alternative version of FreeBSD compared to the desktop because they really were becoming quite distinct and having different communities of people involved in each one of them. So we decided, it's like, okay, we need to uh, clearly distinguish them in name again, and hence the name change... Well, not really name change, but the split of the project, if you will, between True or Less as just the core operating system, as a clearly distinct alternate version of FreeBSD. I think Chris likes to use the term uh, downstream fork, I think okay. is the term he likes to use of FreeBSD. Sure. Uh-huh.
1: Um,
6: so just trying to clearly distinguish it so that people realize that it really is the base underlying thing that has all the changes to OpenRC and LibreSSL SSL and all sorts of other things they brought into base. But then they added uh, along, the, uh, when they were t- working on the split thing, Um, They went ahead and actually wrote a full distribution mechanism, distribution building system into TrueOS itself so that Project Trident is simply becoming the first distribution of TrueOS using all of the brand new mechanisms for using just one or two configuration files to completely build your own distribution based around TrueOS.
1: Okay. And uh, JT, do you have anything to add about Project Trident? I know that uh, you and I had talked about that back at Southeast Linux Fest. I know that you had some stickers um, and, uh, and that, that that was one of the things that you were representing at the booth and at the table.
3: Yeah, so when, when we made the decision uh, that you know, TrueOS had become different enough from FreeBSD that it needed to stand on its own, uh, there was a big internal discussion about, well, we have a desktop. We've had a desktop for, at, l- at this point, I think 10 years, is how long the entire project has been going on. We don't want to discontinue the desktop. Ken um, has put a lot of time into specifically writing a portable desktop. He's been writing it for the BSDs, but writing it in a way that it can be easily ported to anything else. Um, back when it was actually back before there were version numbers, um, I had ported it to, uh, to Slackware to use on my Linux boxes. Um, so, we wanted to keep that and we wanted to still have a desktop. And for a while there, we were thinking about, okay, well, let's just keep the desktop and the server, you know, monikers. So, we would have the TrueOS server. But when we decided to do or to include a mechanism for anyone to be able to take TrueOS and build their own distribution of it, we decided, well, if we're going to be allowing that, we need to make it a level playing field for everybody. Because if we kept TrueOS desktop, but then allowed other people to make their own version, it would come across to the community like there's one blessed version of TrueOS for the desktop. Right, right, Oh, and then there's all these other guys.
1: Absolutely. And we didn't want
3: that. So we decided, yeah, we should go with a different name. So, you know, it's still the same developers that worked on TrueOS and desktop and the TrueOS server that are doing Project Trident. But we wanted to give it kind of a fresh name and a fresh start because there are other projects like GhostBSD, which is now also going to be based on the TrueOS OS operating system platform um so it, it levels the playing field for anybody that wants to get involved and create their own instead of they just being like here's the special one that we like and then there's those other guys so now it's there's true which everybody works on but then from that anyone if they want to create their own distribution has the ability to do that and it's going to be on the same playing field as everybody else who wants to do the same thing
1: and tr the, there is no such thing at this point then as just traditional BSD that would be so for our Linux friends out there uh, to make a comparison then BSD is simply the kernel mechanism and um, you know true OS as it were is the entire operating system that you could use for desktop or servers and then Trident is the specific the project Trident is specifically for desktop users
3: um yes and no let me let me clarify so BSDs are du- a direct descendant from the original AT&T Unix from back in the late 60s. Okay. Um, unlike Linux, there is not a distinction between userland and the kernel. Oh, really? In Linux, you have the kernel, and that's Linux, and then you have the GNU userland, right. which is what most distributions use. But yeah. other distributions, like for instance, when I was a Puppy Linux dev, we used either BusyBox or uh, TinyBox for our actual userland binary. So in Linux, there's a distinction between the kernel running and then the user land running. That's why Android is, of course, Linux, even though the user land has nothing in common with any of the typical Linux distributions that we're familiar with. On the BSD side of the fence, the core operating system with the user land and the kernel are all developed by the same team. So there isn't that distinction. Um, So with the different BSDs that are out there, OpenBSD, NetBSD, FreeBSD, now TrueOS, Dragonfly BSD, um, and there's a few others. They're developing the kernel along with the user land at the same time. Interesting. Um so everything is very, very tightly integrated together. Um, so for the desktop, we're taking the TrueOS operating system that has its kernel and its operating system all the basic user land uh, uh, a Linux user would be used to we're taking that and we are build Trident project Trident is building on top of that with all the desktop components all the wireless networking stuff that you would expect all browsers the normal stuff that you would expect if you want a desktop operating system
1: hmm does when so when you talk about uh, being you know these this idea of blessed distros uh, would you say that true os and trident are are the two then blessed distros or and all of the other ones are community or like like you said earlier is the is the is the real driving force here to make everything a community-driven project there are just some that have backing from larger businesses like ix systems
3: um well ix systems is the corporate back Backer slash sponsor of the TrueOS project. Right. Um, they have been since the PCBSD days. Yeah. Um, project Trident, the desktop is becoming a community-based project, so it's not owned by IX Systems like TrueOS is.
1: Oh, I see. Oh, um, really? Okay. So that's, so that's that's an important right. distinction. So even though you're an employer uh, employee rather of IX Systems and you work on the Trident project, that you're doing that on your free time. They're not paying you to do that.
3: Correct. I mean, I do do work on the TrueOS. Operating right. system, right. which, which trickles of course down. is what Trident is based on. Yeah. Right.
6: Yeah. And then um, I want to say there is IX Systems does actually sponsor the Trident project too. So they wanted specifically to say that Project Trident was a community project. That was one of the key goals here. But IX Systems isn't abandoning the desktop or anything like that. I mean, they're the first sponsor of Project Trident, and they actually are sponsoring all sorts of stuff. Like we have our build server in the IX Systems. Headquarters in Tennessee, not the California headquarters, but I suppose it's just the office, not the headquarters. But yeah, we have it in the Tennessee office where we work. We have, uh, they sponsor like electricity, internet costs, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They sponsor us to work on Trident during work hours as well. So there's there's a lot of sponsorship opportunities, but IX Systems is not claiming ownership of Project Trident kind of like uh, they do with the TrueOS project.
1: No, that makes sense. Um, and a, a good analogy no, I was just going to, I was just going mean, to, I guess what I was going to ask was if for one of these community, let's say there's, let's talk about one of these other community uh, BSD spins, for example, if you had an employee that happened yeah. to work at IX systems and they, their passion was one of these, you know, community spins, IX system would very well be willing to pay them to do the same thing like they pay for you to work on, on Triton. That's what I'm hearing is that it, it's not, it's not that IX systems pays because it's it's some sort. There's some sort of blessed special purpose of Trident. They just pay because they like giving back to the BSD community, and they would do that regardless of which particular community spin you were involved with.
3: Yes, actually, one of the uh, other distributions, uh, Ghost BSD, um, is actually run by someone who now works for IX Systems um, in our in our QA department. Uh, Eric, he's a he's a Canadian. He's a really really good guy. He's done a lot of work uh, for Ghost BSD, which has been using. Uh, in the past the gnome desktop now he's using mate uh, built on top of Um and that is another community project that he runs he owns um, but he also works for I X
1: talk to me a little bit about the Lumina desktop I know you guys have you uh, you've, you've- Put a lot of extensive work into this desktop environment that you're using specifically uh, to use BSD or TrueOS or now Project Triton on the desktop. But the desktop environment is something special. You guys didn't just fork GNOME or KDE or Mate or any of those things. You you, had, you went and whole hog invented your own desktop. Talk to me about what the inspiration of that was, and uh, and 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 what it brings you if you're a desktop BSD user.
6: Well, really the inspiration for, <clears throat> excuse me, the inspiration for really starting to write the Lumina desktop was that we needed something that worked on the BSDs. Uh, most of the desktops that are out there, GNOME and KDE and XSE and all the other ones, they're all designed and written for Linux and then have to have a ton of various kits ported over to the BSDs, whether they're supported on Linux or not, just to be able to get things to run properly on the BSDs, things like kit and PolicyKit, things that have been consumed by SystemD for the most part, but are kind of still around, but not recommended. Those are the only ways to run a lot of things on the BSD. So Lumina is like taking a fresh approach and saying, okay, we don't need to start with the assumption that this is Linux. We're going to start with the assumption that there is no assumption. This is just a Unix-like system. Alright, so getting rid of all the Linux-based toolkits and just going to the Qt5 toolkit and saying, okay, that's it, because Qt5 is pretty much universal now. So if you have that, what does it take to actually run a desktop? And that was the, basically the philosophy of Lumina. So it was written from the ground up just using Qt. And then it does use uh, some of the X11 libraries as well because to actually talk to X for some more advanced interactions that Qt doesn't provide but that's pretty much it it doesn't require any of the kits it doesn't require any d or pulse audio systems it doesn't require any particular init systems or service mechanisms it's completely agnostic to the underlying operating system
1: tell me about talk to me about the decision to go with qt i know um jt and i talked about this a little bit in the past Um, why was it that you guys chose to go the qt direction rather than um say gtk for example
6: well, in particular, I mean, I'd been using Qt for a while already as part of the PCBSD project because Chris had based that off of KDE. We had written a lot of utilities to go with that to make PCBSD work properly, like network management and stuff like that, so that it would work on FreeBSD because the built-in network stuff didn't work in KDE on anything outside of Linux. So we've been doing stuff like that. So it's like I was already familiar enough with Qt at the time, but Qt's documentation and stability and upgradability is, you know, second to none. I can go from QT4 to to QT5. It took me like an hour to convert maybe three lines of code in all the various projects to move them all from QT4 to QT5 without breaking stuff. And then for all the individual versions of QT5, I never have to worry about the APIs getting broken between versions or release numbers. It's just, it all is absolutely seamless plus Qt works on pretty much every operating system in existence, including iOS, Android and everything else. So as long as you use that and can use it with the C plus plus library backend, it makes for a really really stable and just a stable standard for everything going forward.
1: I love it. I love it. I think that's an excellent choice. I think those are excellent reasons and uh, and I like the direction that you're going. I also like the conversation I'm hearing here is that, um, you guys are becoming, as a project, less dependent on the actions and decisions of those of us in the Linux community. Um, it sounds like that played a little bit of a role. Do I have that right, or am I, am, I, am, I, am I off on that?
6: I would say yes, that's right, because more often than not, especially when you're talking about desktop uh, spins of the BSDs, It's always, well, do you have this compatibility with Linux? Do you have this utility from Linux? Do you have all of these various subsystems from Linux? And those are always what it comes down to. So architectural decisions that were coming out of Linux communities and Linux development Mm -hmm. was having major repercussions on the BSD systems that were trying to use the same desktop. So Lumina is a way of kind of breaking that completely and saying, no, 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 the desktop doesn't need all the other stuff too. The desktop is just the desktop and anybody can use it, whether you're on Linux or on BSD. That's
4: fantastic. So by
6: having bsd based desktops use Lumina, it just makes it a whole lot easier from an architectural perspective to actually get a desktop installed and running without having to worry about configuring all these other various toolkits that might be changing things all the time
1: who is the ideal bsd user a desktop on user who is the kind of user that you guys target when you look at and say we want to design this lumina desktop we want to design this Triton project we want to break this off and have people directly contributing to a project that is directly centered around the desktop um you know specifically on the desktop not the server um you know different branding different tools different uh, logos this beautiful custom-designed desktop that people actually want to get on Linux because it's such a compelling desktop environment. What kind of user is the user that says, I am going to jump from macOS or Windows or even Linux to come over to the Project Triton? Who who, who is that user? Describe that user to me.
3: For the most part, I would say that the people that come over to it are the people that are the tinkerers. Um, The people that look at a system and go, yeah, this is nice, but what if? Um, the people that, you know, in the Linux side, you have all the distro hoppers, the people that, you know, they'll install, uh, they'll install, uh, Mate, you know, Ubuntu Mate. um, they'll use it for a couple months and they'll go, this was great. This was fun. Let me go try Fedora. And then they'll use Fedora for a couple months and then they'll go, you know what, let me go try Arch. Um, the people that really want to get in and understand and kind of tinker and turn wrenches and see what, what is possible and what can be done. Um, but it's, it's sort of, I don't want to say that it's, it's another level of that but it's a lot different when you're just moving from one Linux distribution to another because, for the most part, you're using the same kernel, you're using the same user land. So the the people that we get across are the people that really want to get more of an understanding of computing in general, of understanding more of, okay, I know how the Linux kernel works. I know how it does kernel calls and memory mapping, but how how does it work with other operating systems? So we get a lot of people that see the BSDs and they go, okay, well, this is Unix-like as well, so I have a foundation of knowledge that will transfer. I just have to modify some things that I know and how to do things, and then they find themselves comfortable at home instead of jumping to something that's vastly different. Um, not to badmouth the project, because I know several of the devs, and it's a great project, but like the Haiku project is a completely different operating system, different kernel, different user land. So to jump into that, there's all this extra knowledge that someone would have to learn from the ground up to really be able to get in and start tinkering. whereas for the Linux guys who want a little extra challenge, who want to kind of push things in a different direction. Anything that's BSD based is close enough to be familiar, but different enough to kind of be a challenge.
1: Yeah. And I've noticed you guys at at your conferences, um, most of you, if not all of you eat your own dog food. You know, when you guys go to conferences, you guys are all running BSD on your laptops. Um, Some of you are dual booting Linux because you got, (laughs) you got some other stuff that you want to get done. Um, but all of you are running it, if, if you guys believe in it. And even a lot of you that are just BSD server guys, I see you guys running it on your laptop. And uh, I, I love the community that you guys have built up. Do you think that the community has less drama than it does in the Linux community?
3: I would say yes. I think that may just be because of the size of the community is, is a little bit smaller. Um, obviously, the, the larger a community is, you know, there's, there's a percentage of just the general population that loves drama. And the larger a community that there is, the larger number of individuals that you're going to have just based on simple percentages. Um, so we do have less of it than, than some other communities. Um, but I think also because of the type of pe- person or the type of user that is attracted to the BSDs and, and, and you know, the other, the other Unix-like operating systems, they're, they tend to be more of the code matters mindset of, you know, I want to accomplish something. I want to do something. I want my machine to do something. So the focus is on results and producing code and tweaking code and less on, I really don't like the color of this. I'm going to start a campaign to change the color from green to purple or whatever. Sure. So we tend to have less of that, some of that community drama, simply because. People are focused on their screen actually trying to get something done. Right now, we have a community telegram channel. Um, right now, it's actually labeled the uh, TrueOS Community Channel. We haven't, we haven't quite switched the name over yet, but, you know, they can, they can find us there or actually, Noah, your own uh, telegram channel, the F Noah Show. Um, people that are in there, they can find me under JT or q 5 Uh They can just send me a message, and I'll be able to send them a link. Um, yeah.
1: Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Again, Ken Moore, J.T. Pennington, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah program. We appreciate having you. We look forward to getting you back on the program real soon.
6: All right. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thanks, Noah.
1: Again, that was uh, Ken Moore, J.T. Pennington, TrueOS.org, project.trident.org. Check it out. Hey, guys, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and material referenced in this episode. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter and get the latest at Ask Noah Show. That is on Twitter. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone system, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.